RadioInfluence.com. The future is now. This is Beyond the Badge on Radio Influence. A look inside the biggest and most controversial news stories you need to know now. One of the country's most relied upon law enforcement analysts, Vincent Hill. Good evening and welcome to Beyond the Badge. Of course, I am your host, Vincent Hill. Of course, today is Tuesday. Of course, it's 8 p.m. And of course, I appreciate you listening to me for the next 30 minutes or so. Hey, there's a lot going on. There's a lot I want to discuss, mostly Chicago and the conviction of Jason Van Dyke this past Friday. If you don't remember, Jason Van Dyke, former Chicago police officer who shot and killed Uh, 17-year-old Laquan McDonald, who was armed with a knife back in 2014. He shot him 16 times. This past Friday, a jury convicted him of second-degree murder and, I believe, 16 counts of aggravated assault, one count per round fired. So I want to talk about Chicago. I want to talk about why I believe this conviction came down and what it means for police, what it means for the city of Chicago. Also, President Trump on yesterday actually appeared at the... uh, annual meeting of police chiefs. He talked about policing. He actually talked about the city of Chicago as well and what he's willing to do to help them get a grip on what's going on in their crime situation there. Of course, anybody that knows anything about Chicago knows that there's a lot of people dying, a lot of people getting shot on a daily basis in the city of Chicago. Also, In Florence, South Carolina, six officers shot, one deputy died. Uh, They had his funeral, almost 30 years of law enforcement, and it's sad that uh, he didn't get the coverage he deserved uh, from the mainstream media. So I want to talk about that as well. And then I got to rush, pack a bag, get on the plane tomorrow, head up to New York to host Law and Crime. I got some things to do Wednesday. And then Thursday, of course, I'm anchoring Law and Crime from 12 to 3. So be sure to go check us out. Show me some love at lawandcrime.com. Check us out. We cover the biggest trials in the country. And one of those trials that we actually covered was, in fact, the Jason Van Dyke trial. And when I was anchoring last Thursday, it was the day after Van Dyke had taken the stand in his own defense. And in my opinion, this is where the case went horribly wrong again here's the backdrop back in october of 2014 police get a call i.e they get a call they show up about a black male armed with the knife who had uh, approached a couple in a threatening manner with the knife uh the male in that situation threw his cell phone and a bunch of rocks at laquan but nonetheless police were still called laquan is walking down the street he's running down the street he's armed with the knife at one point he punctures the uh, one of the police vehicle's tires, continues to walk, not obeying commands. Several officers on scene. And uh, at some point, Jason Van Dyke and his partner arrive after several officers had been on the scene. Van Dyke gets out of his car. Six seconds later, he shoots and kills Laquan McDonald's. Again, McDonald, I should say. Again, he shot him 16 times. So this was in 2014. It finally goes to trial. Uh, the defense putting on a pretty good case about um, use of force. They have a use of force expert, 
albeit he was paid $10,000 by the defense. Man, I'm in the wrong business. But anyway, uh, you know, he's talking about use of force. He's talking about the distance of a knife attack versus uh, when someone can be stabbed. And, you know, the prosecution, they did okay saying, was it reasonable for Van Dyke to shoot that many times? Now, again, I never want to Monday morning quarterback and officer's decisions or assume that I could reasonably think what that officer was thinking in that split second. So here's what the jury was up against. You had other officers there on the scene who were testifying that, they did not believe that the threat was imminent. There was no threat against their life. A taser unit was in route. You had one officer testify that Van Dyke made statements on the way there. I believe it was his partner. Uh, I can't remember his name offhand. I think it's Walsh, who, as they were going to the scene, Van Dyke made statements that he's going to have to shoot the guy, and why hasn't anyone shot the guy? So the jury's already hearing this. Okay, you have these other officers who are there. They don't use deadly force. They're waiting for a taser unit. You have his partner saying, yes, he said he's going to have to shoot the guy. Wasn't How come no one has shot the guy? Then he gets out, and he does exactly that. He shoots him. He shoots him 16 times. Now, I think the jury was kind of split up until the point Van Dyke took the stand himself. Now, again, I don't know what I would do in this situation, whether I would take the stand or not. Again, it's up to the state to prove their case. It's not up to me to prove my innocence. So when he took the stand, in my opinion, more, of course, when he was talking to the defense, when he was being cross-examined by the defense, he didn't seem believable based on this one piece of evidence that's out there. The dash cam footage. Now, granted, this is dash cam footage that Rahm Emanuel, the great white hope of Chicago, hid from the public and from the parents for quite some time. The dash cam video, based on what Van Dyke said, does not match. And I think that's what actually led to his conviction of second degree murder. Not first degree, but second degree murder. Of course, first degree, there's a lot more to it. You have to prove premeditation. There's so much. And and keep in mind, Van Dyke was acting in response to his duties. He wasn't just a civilian who happened upon Laquan McDonald, got out of his car, shot him, got back in his car and drove away. He was responding to a, a call of crime. So to get first degree murder, it was a little harder. He got second degree. And I think it was because my personal opinion and, in fact, one of the jurors who was involved in that conviction on the jury who came back with that guilty verdict of second degree murder is because they say uh, Van Dyke was not believable on the stand based on what the dash cam video showed. Now, if you haven't seen the video, I urge you to go watch it. Uh, just Google Jason Van Dyke video or Laquan McDonald shooting video. It's on YouTube. You'll see it. Um, now, based on Van Dyke's testimony, he says that Laquan McDonald. Now, keep in mind, this is six seconds after he got out of his car. Laquan McDonald was advancing towards him. This is Van Dyke's testimony. And the, the defense even went so far as to do some animation recreation from his perspective. The only problem is 
when you're trying to do that, the only perspective you can get are actually his set of eyes. You can't recreate a moment like that. Now, you have dash cam footage that tells you what happened, but you cannot recreate with drones and animations something that you saw with your eyes in that split second. So that was part of the, the defense's problem. But again, it goes back to his testimony. He he says Laquan McDonald was advancing towards him. And, you know, when you hear the word advance, you think someone is stepping towards you, mostly in a threatening manner. He was advancing towards me. And then Van Dyke says he could see Laquan raised a knife over his left sho- shoulder towards Van Dyke. And that's when he thought he was retreating and he fired. Well, the problem is with, again, the dash cam footage. And I think had he not taken the stand, we either would have seen an acquittal or a hung jury. Dash cam footage clearly shows Laquan McDonald walking down the street, heading towards his right. There's this large, long fence that's going down towards the end of the block. Laquan's walking to the right towards that fence when he's shot. His hands are down to his side, and he never at one point raised a knife over his left shoulder towards Van Dyke. And in fact, when Van Dyke said he was retreating, i.e. Van Dyke was retreating, the video actually shows him take two large steps towards Laquan McDonald as he starts firing. So not only was he not retreating as he said he's advancing so he was actually advancing on Laquan and he shot him 16 times and the video never showed Laquan raising that knife over his left shoulder towards Van Dyke and I think that's what got him his conviction now again I don't know if I would have taken the stand I don't know if it was a good move for his defense to put him on the stand simply because they had a use of force expert who talked about closing the distance of a knife attack, all right? Who talked about the use of force continuum, who talked about when you could actually shoot a fleeing felon, who talked about all of these things. But when Van Dyke took the stand, even myself as a former trained law enforcement officer, what he was saying did not match what was on the video. So I think that actually came back to bite him in the butt. Now, also, he was combative with the prosecution. Again, I don't know how I would react if I'm fighting for my life, a life outside of prison versus a life in prison, right? I mean, the first-degree murder charge, of course, would carry a maximum sentence of life in prison. So, you, you take Van Dyke's testimony, you watch the video, and it's clear, I think, why the jury came up with the verdict they did. Now, this verdict, actually this trial is pretty historic because Van Dyke was the first Chicago police officer charged with murder in more than 50 years. And that case is kind of similar because it was involving someone who was armed with the knife. That ended in a conviction and that was in 1970. So, Van Dyke's the second officer in 50 years to be convicted of murder, dealing with someone with a knife. Now, I don't know the circumstances of that conviction in 1970. I'm sure there was no body cam, no dash cam. It's 1970. Heck, I don't even think the VCR was even out in 1970, let alone 
body cam or dash cam. But, you know, I don't know how I feel about this rush to charge officers with murder because they're in line, they're acting in line with their duties. Now, granted, I understand trust and transparency. I get it. I understand that sometimes officers do stuff that is questionable. I get it. But again, officers are making split second decisions. I get that. And I still think there's a different standard versus, okay, Van Dyke is just a guy driving to Starbucks. He sees Laquan McDonald walking down the street. It's like, oh, you know what? I'm going to get out of my car and I'm going to shoot this guy 16 times. And I'm just going to go about my life. Whenever you're dealing with an individual, Laquan McDonald, who's armed, who's not responding to commands, who you find out later was on PCP, I think you have to take all of that into consideration. And again, I'm not in Van Dyke's head. I don't know. He says he wanted to eliminate the threat before he harmed someone else. There was like a Burger King and a Dunkin' Donuts down the street in the direction Laquan McDonald was walking to. You take into the fact that he approached his couple in a threatening manner. We don't know what he was going to do with that. The guy threw rocks. Laquan ran. So who knows what Laquan would have done had he not been shot? I don't know. But what I will say in the defense, the defense's closing arguments, he said something and uh, I was actually anchoring while that was going on. It was a great moment in court. And this part I agree with 100%. He said he was holding the the actual knife and he said this would have all gone a different way if Laquan did one thing. And he did a mic drop moment in the courthouse, but it was the knife. He held the knife up and he said if he would have done one thing and he dropped the knife. And that part is so, so true. Take away the 16 shots. Take away Van Dyke only being there six seconds. Take away the fact that the taser unit hadn't got there yet. Had Laquan McDonald at some point dropped that knife when the other 10 or 11 officers were trying to get him to drop the knife, the outcome of that call would have been different. Laquan McDonald would have been arrested. He would have been charged with maybe the ag assault of that couple or the attempted robbery the criminal damage to property because he stabbed one of the police tires and depending on his record he was 17 so he was a juvenile so depending on his record he would have got probation Laquan McDonald would still be here today again when I watch the video when I listen to Van Dyke I'm not going to say he's lying but I just want to say that his testimony did not match what the video showed But at the end of the day, I always say one thing will keep you alive, and that's compliance. So had Laquan dropped that knife, Laquan would be here. Van Dyke would not be charged with second-degree murder. Now, the family says, yes, they've received justice um, for the death of Laquan. You know, some people want it first degree, and they said they would protest if they didn't get it, whatever. 
Um, you know, I'm not sure how how long Van Dyke is facing. You know, I, he again, second degree murder, 16 counts of aggravated assault. If you add up the factors of the sentencing, that's a total of 96 years. But I believe his attorney will probably try to combine those 16 charges into one. And then the second degree murder, if he's lucky, 10 to 15 years in prison. Because remember, he's a first time offender. He's never been arrested, never been in prison. So although he was a police officer, you still have to allow the justice system to work the exact same way for a law enforcement officer as it would for a civilian. Now, one of the things I I did say, uh, I believe Friday, I was back on law and crime. I wasn't anchoring. Yeah, it was Friday because it was uh, while the jury was on verdict watch. Actually, it was correction right after the conviction was read. I said, you know, this is tragic for both sides. For the family of Laquan McDonald, he will never, ever be back in their lives and I empathize with the parents you know as a parent losing the 17 year old I couldn't imagine although Van Dyke was convicted is that really justice is that satisfaction you can't get your son back now turn it around and you look at Van Dyke's wife Tiffany and you look at his two daughters who actually were threatened in school just prior to the verdict people were looking for them and passing pictures out of them. So not only do they have to deal with these physical threats, I would go out on a limb and say Van Dyke was the sole, if not the majority uh, provider for that house because he testified that earlier that day before the shooting, he was working an extra job or as civilians call it, a part-time job. He was working security at Walmart. He was making extra money. That's why we as police call it an extra job. So, Not only are these little girls getting these threats in school, I'm sure his wife has probably heard some things at work or on social media. They now have to adjust their entire lives to be able to function without Jason Van Dyke in their life. Not only as a husband, not only as a father, but as a financial provider. So really, who's the winner in this situation? Nobody wins. Everyone in the media is like, oh, it's a great day. We got a conviction of this white officer who killed this black kid. You got all these organizations. This is a great day. This proves what we've been saying all along, that white men just kill black kids unjustifiably. You got all of these people saying all of this great things about this conviction, but nobody's considering what Jason Van Dyke, more importantly, what his wife and his two daughters will now have to deal with, how they will have to adjust their lives. And not only only adjust their lives, the ridicule that they will face for years and years and years to come. Just think about that. Years and years of ridicule. Years of not even having that financial stability. This guy was out working an extra job to make sure his wife and his kids were provided for, and now that's gone. So, who were the winners in this? In my opinion, nobody. In my opinion, what this does, it makes officers not want to go out and do their jobs. 
especially in a city like Chicago, when they weren't even getting the support of their mayor anyway. In my opinion, it makes officers not want to go out and do their jobs and do their jobs the way that their training and the law says they can. Now, again, not putting myself in his head, but if his testimony is true and he was concerned that uh, Laquan McDonald may escape and go do harm to someone, then the law does say that he could have reacted in the way he did. In fact, the use of force expert for the defense quoted the law to the jury that said Jason Van Dyke could act in the way he did based on what he believed to be an imminent threat to the public. So, in my opinion, no winners in this situation at all. All right, speaking of Chicago, as I mentioned, President Trump, number 45, was in Orlando yesterday at the uh, International Association of Chiefs of Police. And during uh, his speech, while he was talking there, he he mentioned several things. I'll, I'll get to one. Uh, that I think is pretty interesting. But he talked about Chicago, and he says he's directed his AG, his attorney general, to help straighten out the terrible shooting wave in Chicago, right? And uh, he says the crime spree in Chicago is a terrible plight, and I, I agree with him, right? I mean, it is terrible. I mean, you have innocent people dying on a daily basis you have unarmed black men being shot on a daily basis um, but it never makes news you know because again it doesn't fit the narrative but nonetheless it happens in the city of chicago every day so president trump says he's directed the ag to help straighten out uh this terrible wave of shootings in chicago and he also encouraged the city of chicago to use the very controversial stop and frisk and i i actually talked about this on Fox and Friends uh, a couple months ago when we were talking about uh, police who are people who were targeting police and how police are being shot uh, in this country. And Jillian actually asked me about stop and frisk and my thoughts on it. And I said the same thing the president said, hey, listen, it's controversial, but it worked, right? When you look at a city like New York, stop and frisk worked. Now, a lot of people say it's racially biased. A lot of people have so much to say about it. But let's understand stop and frisk. You can't just walk up to someone and say, hey, I'm the police. Put your hands up. Let me pat you down. Right. You still have to have probable cause that this person could be armed. Now. Let's dive into that a little bit, right? Let's take the city of Chicago. Let's take uh, one of the shootings they had recently, police shooting, where police on video surveillance monitored and watched these individuals known as corner boys, boys sitting on the corner selling drugs. And let's take it a step further. On that video, you can see a person continue to pull out a firearm now all right let's take that firearm portion out of the video in my experience my experience when i know there's narcotics activity going on and i know there's corner boys and i know there's a lookout boy and i know there's this not only are they carrying drugs one or two or maybe three of those individuals are carrying 
weapons as well. Now, again, stop and frisk doesn't mean that police just have free reign to go up to someone and say, let me pat you down because you're in the park walking your dog and I just feel that you may be armed. There has to be probable cause and that probable cause. And some people will say, oh, it's racial profiling is stereotyping. The fact is, in high crime areas, when you see certain things based on your police experience and your training, you know that there's a chance, there's probable cause that an individual may be armed based on their actions, based on the actions of those around them. So whenever I hear people say it's racial profiling, it's racially biased, it's, well, listen, if you don't want to be associated with something, don't be associated with it. If you don't want to be approached by police because there may be possible narcotics activity or you may be possibly armed, here's a clue. Don't hang around people that are doing narcotics activity or who are armed. Don't associate with something you don't want to be associated with. So President Trump is saying, hey, Chicago, you need to do stop and frisk. If you don't believe it works, look at the city of New York. But I don't know how Chicago is going to take that because granted, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people every week being shot. Dozens and dozens and dozens of people every week being shot and killed. But because President Trump says it, and according to Chicago, he's not welcome there, I'm sure the leaders in Chicago right now are in an uproar that the President of the United States would suggest something so racially biased that they are just appalled by it. Well... I would say to the city of Chicago, it may actually be something you should possibly consider because guns on the streets means people getting shot on the streets. It means nine-year-olds getting pulled into an alley by gang members and being shot. It means a little baby in a stroller being shot. It means a 90-year-old grandmother being shot. All of these people being shot because police, their hands are tied, especially in the city of Chicago. No one wants to ruffle any feathers, but they wish the crime would go down. Well, you can't have a reduction in crime all the while tying the hands of your police. Let's be honest. Sometimes policing looks ugly. I'll admit it. I've been in ugly situations. Sometimes policing looks ugly because people don't understand it or people want to say it's biased to one demographic. But if it works, it works. Would you rather someone complain that they were stopped in frisk because the officer had probable cause to do that Or would you rather the officers just ignore what their gut tells them, what their police training tells them, and allow that same person that would have complained to go out and shoot a 90-year-old because he was trying to shoot someone else, but he missed and hit the little baby in the stroller? Which one would you rather have? Sometimes policing is 
an ugly thing, but the benefits of it are for the good of the community. All right, I want to talk about this latest police shooting and the death of a black man named Terrence Carraway. He was 52 years old in Florence, South Carolina, and he was armed and he was shot and killed. But you really haven't heard much about Terrence Carraway. Again, he was a black man. He was armed. He was shot and killed in an officer-involved shooting. 52 years old, Florence, South Carolina. Well, the reason you haven't heard about this black man being shot is because he was actually a police officer who was responding to back up his brothers in blue who were being ambushed by a crazed shooter who was 74 years old and he put his life in jeopardy to protect those lives of his fellow officers. Now, Terrence Sergeant Terrence Carraway, again, 52 years old, was not only a police officer in the city of Florence, South Carolina, he was an Air Force veteran. He was a brother, a father, highly respected in his church, very active in his church. If I'm not mistaken, he was a deacon at his church. And this guy died, Sergeant Terrence Carraway, protecting the lives of his fellow officers in this Ann Bush shooting. Now, six officers were wounded, one died. And it all sparked because they were going to investigate or question a 28-year-old about involvement in sex crimes involving a minor. Now, I don't know what those sex crimes are. I really don't care. I think it's a mute point. So his father, 74-year-old Frederick Hopkins, decided, no, I don't want my son going to jail. I don't want the police here. I'm just going to pull out my freaking fully automatic rifle, and I'm going to start shooting. And this lasted for 30 minutes until an armored vehicle could get there and rescue these fallen officers. 30 freaking minutes. This guy continued to fire upon police. Sergeant Carraway lost his life. He was about to retire after reaching 30 years of service. An Air Force veteran, someone who gave 30 years of his life to the city of Florence. He was about to retire and he was taken out. He loved serving the city. A lot of police officers in this day and age don't make 30 years. This guy served his country. He came back. He served Florence, South Carolina, which is not too far from where my parents live. And he's shot. He's killed. Not over in Iraq. Not while on deployment. He shot in Florence, South Carolina. And it never even really made mainstream media. I never heard the Black Lives Matter movement protesting about it because it doesn't fit the narrative. 
But what really troubles me, but I'm not surprised given the state that this country's in right now, what really troubles me is a man could go serve his country. He didn't, he wasn't serving french fries, he was serving his country in the U.S. Air Force. He leaves the Air Force and then he says, you know what, I still have a duty to serve. I want to serve my community, so I'm going to enlist with the Florence Police Department, and I'm going to serve here for 30 years. And right when he hits 30 years, he's shot and killed before his retirement, and that's not a big story? That's not making MSNBC? It's not making CSN? What? That should be a very huge story. Wait, Jesse Jackson's not there? What? Benjamin Crump is not there? Well, you say when a black man is shot that it's a tragedy to the entire nation, right? That's what we've heard in some of these speeches. Well, a black man was shot and killed, and it was a tragedy to the entire nation. So how come no one's speaking out on it? Well, of course, I'll speak out on it. Sergeant Terrence Carraway, 52 years old. I actually want to honor him tonight in my 10-7 segment. So here it goes. Police Officer Terrence Carraway, Florence Police Department, Florence, South Carolina. End of watch Wednesday, October 3rd, 2018. Police Officer Terrence Carraway was shot and killed while responding to assist three Florence County Sheriff's Office deputies who had been shot and wounded while serving a sexual assault warrant at a house off of Vintage Drive. Another subject in the house opened fire on the deputies as they approached the house, wounding all three. The man then positioned himself in a vantage point in a second floor window, giving him view of fire of several hundred yards. Officer Carraway, along with three other Florence police officers, responded to the scene and were attempting to rescue the three wounded deputies when the subject opened fire on them too, shooting all four. All of the wounded officers were transported to a local hospital where Officer Carraway succumbed to his wounds. The subject remained barricaded inside of his home for two hours before being taken into custody. Officer Carraway had served with the Florence Police Department for 30 years. Responding to assist three fellow officers. Responding to assist three fellow officers. A black man killed on the street and no outrage by the mainstream media. No outrage by the Black Lives Matter movement because he's a black man that was actually protecting and serving. He's a black man that served his country. He wasn't doing a strong arm robbery at a store. He wasn't armed with the knife. He wasn't armed with the gun and refused to put his hands behind his back. He was a police officer serving the community, killed in the line of duty, killed by a white man. I mean, it fits the narrative, right? No, because he was a police officer. That's why you haven't heard it. But here on Beyond the Badge, I honor Sergeant 
Terrence Caraway. I honor you and I thank you for listening. As always, I got to go pack so I can get on this plane tomorrow. I'll see you right here. Same time, same place next week. Radioinfluence.com. Good night. To continue the conversation, get updates on the show, and to find out when you can see him on television, follow Vincent on Twitter at Vincent Hill TV. That's at Vincent Hill TV. This has been Beyond the Badge on Radio Influence. This is a Crush Performance Quick Fix on Radio Influence. In 1822, we ate the amount of added sugar in one 12-ounce can of soda every five days. So the amount of sugar in your average soft drink every five days. That's way back in 1822. Today, we're consuming that every seven hours. And we're paying the price. And we've seen it every single day on the news. Diabetes. Uh, Alzheimer's dementia, overweight obesity, general health issues like hypertension, cardiovascular disease, cancer. And for me, one of the biggest crimes, uh, childhood obesity, childhood diabetes, and the fact that uh, we're basically looking at a generation of kids who are going to have a shorter lifespan than their parents for the first time in human history. And that's what the Crush War on Sugar is all about. Crush Performance with Jeff Crushell can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.